Hi, this is Ami Joseph. Welcome to another edition of Unscripted Equity Curiosity. In this segment, Andrew Felix and I discuss Andrew Friedman's transition from healthcare analyst to communications sector head. Today, uh, we're throwing the ball into Andrew's court. And Andrew, um, when I first got to Hedgeye, you were like the axe on healthcare IT, which is a pretty complicated area with a lot of moving parts, some like new, new things, some really old and cranky things that were trying to make themselves look new, um, and a lot of stuff. And Hedgeye pulled you out of that and threw you into this amazing space, you know, internet and media and cable telco and, and software gaming, and you crushed it. And But I want to go back to the beginning, which was you did some incredibly deep work on content and uh, the media landscape. I just remember being floored by all by by your presentation, your starting point. So first of all, and I remember actually like you disappeared from the world for like ten weeks or twelve weeks or whatever it was. Nobody heard from you, and you were like locked in a cabin somewhere, banging this all out. Um, it was kind of like an interesting journey to to watch from the sidelines. Um, so I guess my first question is, what was like the biggest shock for you transitioning from healthcare IT? over to kind of like media and content. And then, and then kind of like along the way, as you came out with stuff, how did you decide, um, and even today, how do you decide like in a, in, a, in a content universe, how do you decide like how to pick stocks? And, I, and what I mean is in the old days, like, and I'm dating myself here a little bit, but in the old days, people in that sector would basically make a bet that such and such place was going to have, oh, they're going to have a great new movie this year starring Mel Gibson, and therefore, like, it's gonna, they're going to have a good year, let's go long. Um, or, like, oh, my God, they have a Bond feature coming out this year. They're going to make a you know, half a billion dollars on Bond. Now it's a billion. So let's go long. Like, but it was a, a lot of guesswork like that. Um, so, and I know that in the mix now is this transition from a traditional way of releasing content to a new way of releasing content that also has colored that transition, that transformation has colored the space, but there's still like a content rule here or, or maybe there isn't. I, I want to understand like, how do you like take a big step back and how do you approach this space? And that's kind of why I asked about the origin question of like your transition from a different sector to the sector and some of the learnings that came out of that. And I know it's a big meatball question, but like, feel free to attack it whichever way you want. <laughs> yeah, no, we're off there. Um, but I, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get into it. Um, and if I, you know, if I go off course or anything, just feel free to interrupt me and, you know, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll pivot accordingly. Yeah. So look, healthcare IT was a really, I always have a warm place in my heart. Uh, it was a lot of fun, uh, simply because it was kind of the redhead stepchild of the healthcare industry. Um, there are maybe four or five stickers, not a lot of sexy stuff like there is today. Um, I'll be when I left, Teladoc was just basically coming public. Um, but, uh, you know, in terms of the learnings and the process that I applied there, I mean, it's very applicable to how I approach kind of the communication space and media specifically. <clears throat> um, and I think you can take this approach and really apply it to any sector because it's all asking kind of the same questions. So the first point is, you know, with healthcare IT, it's like, what's your adjustable market? What are the prevailing trends thematically? Um, so in the case of that, it was 
you know, what was driving demand for electronic medical records at the time. And we were just coming off of a big wave of stimulus and being able to get some data set that I could use to monitor demand and booking trends and penetration rates, right? So you know, at the time, we found a really great resource and an industry vendor that didn't really um, sell to the street at the time. So it was very differentiated and, and it basically had every single, it had the entire tech stack, basically vendors for every hospital in the United States. So I could go in and, and it also had their status, whether they were implementing secure um, purchasing or already installed. So I was able to do a really interesting analysis back then of, of you know, adoption, but also um, booking trends and then which correlated pretty well to the reported numbers to a lot of these companies. And I could also look at things like churn and who was winning and losing. So that was really helpful. Um, and then from there, just kind of doing the bottom up fundamental work, um, trying to understand the unit economics of the industry where there's leverage, um, you know, market share gains, losses, um, and then trying to do our best to kind of track our data or thesis in real time. And there was a lot of, um, call it uh, regulation uh, around um, these adoptions of things called patient portals. Um, and it was kind of like really basic stuff, but there were some companies where there was just a URL for every single medical practice. So we were able to just go in and basically just collect the number of medical practices um, and, and count them by vendor uh, based off of their patient portal and almost in real time. So that was really, really helpful. So, yeah, we had some really good calls, uh, both on the long and short side. A lot of them were short uh, just because it was an industry-facing maturity coming off of a massive wave of stimulus. So it was a huge hangover, and estimates were way too high, and management teams were all over the place. Um, and so, you know, the kind of when you have a small space, not a lot of like four or five tickers, and they're all short, and then after a couple of years, like your contrarian short call actually turns out to be right. And everyone's kind of like consensus negative, you know, the, great, you're, you're smart. We won. The problem is it's like, are these longs known and what's next? So it was nice to be able to take over the communication space, have that opportunity around the reclassification, uh, internet meeting, telecom, like you said, Ami, and, and, and apply a lot of, you know, my process and how I cut my teeth in the healthcare IT space, uh, to this space. So, you know, I think the, the first, way we approached it was going after, you know, the media, um, I think, oh, the, the media angle, especially with everything that was going on with direct consumer and over the top trends and just the broader shift of consumption away from linear and, uh, you know, where all these companies were, you know, about to spend billions, about to spend billions and billions of dollars um, to just go after this market, um, regardless of, you know, what the unit economics may be. Um, and so coming at it from a fresh angle, I think was really helpful too, because I didn't really have any biases, either long or short. And we started to do work on Netflix. And, you know, part of that was understanding, you know, return on content spend as well as, um, you know, market uh, adoption trends. So it's very similar to like what I said with healthcare IT. So the first thing I had to do was figure out, you know, what are like, how many subscribers are out there for all these services? Um, how many subscription like OTT services per household they're going to be in the future? What do I think 
the probability is, or what do I think adoption is going to look like for these new services that are launching from Disney Plus, uh, AT&T, HBO Max, Comcast, Peacock, the list goes on and on, and then build the market model um, and inform that market model with survey work, right? So something as simple as aging uh, consumer intention and interest for something like the Disney Plus. And so when we kind of came out of this at the beginning of 2020, or sorry, the beginning of 2019, 2019 now, um, it was looking at, um, we were facing the launch of Disney Plus and everyone still thought that Netflix was going to be the undeniable winner in the space and that the future of OTT was going to be all these media companies just licensing all their content directly to Netflix and Netflix would just continue to use that to take market share and eventually take price, um, which, you know, wasn't in the case of some of these larger media companies, wasn't exactly um, where they were going, right? Because they had their own brand to protect. And for someone like a Disney, it's very important to maintain that direct to consumer relationship because it has a lot of synergies and implications for other parts of their business, right? So they don't want to be disintermediated um, which is why they've launched Disney Plus and invested so aggressively in things like Hulu. Um, so it was, you know, interesting time. And we, we did a bunch of, a lot of work, as you said, um, to really understand where we think the future of the OTT landscape is going to look like two to three years out. And we came up with several themes to kind of anchor on uh, where we think the world is going which was now audience fragmentation was going to occur and over the top. So, you know, Netflix unit penetration was you know, 90% in the U S um, in terms of their market share overall, S5 penetration is about 60%. Um, but then you were going to see all these new players launching and everyone doubted them. But the reality is that um, if they have the content on the, that people want to watch, they're going to subscribe to it. And so, the flip side of that coin is around what happened to kind of core cutting trends and pay TV. And, you know, it, we did see an acceleration and decline of those um, subscribers because as more and more people cut, you know, as more and more content goes from kind of linear to OTT and the best content is, is shifting over to that space. Right. So, you know, no, uh, <laughs> like, none of the good original series are being made for linear these days, right? It's all going to these direct-to-consumer streaming services. And so as that trend continues, um, you know, you, you basically see the value proposition of linear decline further for cutting accelerates. And then you have a wallet share shift that goes over to uh, streaming. And then the question becomes, well, you know, what do churn rates look like? How much money are consumers going to spend in total on streaming services? Um, there was a widely held consensus view back in before Disney Plus launched that, you know, nobody was going to have you know, three or four streaming video services. And now today, that's absolutely <laughs> the case. And I think the average household spends somewhere between 45 to you know, $50 a month on, on these streaming video services and because people want to watch the content. So, uh, you know, Disney put all their top brands behind it. Um, and then they launched with a big bang approach, which, uh, you know, people thought that they weren't going to get four to five million subs. And lo and behold, they, they got over 20 million subs right out of the gate. And that's, and that was what we were arguing 
Um, and, and it's shouldn't, and in retrospect, and we were saying this at the time, in retrospect, it's still not necessarily that surprising, right? Because it's just a change in distribution. It's, you're going from a wholesale distribution model to a retail distribution model. Disney already had all the distribution, so they're just simply transferring it over, which has its own economic implications. Um, but to kind of just go back to your original question on kind of content and, you know, who wins and who loses, I mean, look, the content game is a terrible game. It's a low margin business. It's hit or miss. Um, you know, it's a hit driven business. Um, and you have to strike a balance between, you know, your tent poles and also having a lot of kind of long tail content as well. Um, and the question becomes, well, what, how do you measure your return on content investment? And in theatrical, it's very easy, right? Because you spend $250 million on a big temple plus $50 million in, or 50 to $70 million in marketing, and then you release it and you have box office and you monetize it immediately and you have a number that you can peg it against. So if you if you spend 250 and you make a billion and a half, in the case of Disney, that's great. If you make 400 million, that's not good. If you don't make your cost at a total wash and it gets written off, right? In streaming, it's an entirely different an uh, equation um, because there is kind of no pay per, you know, it's, it's not pay per view. Um, and so you have to deal, so you have to start dealing with content amortization and then also various engagement metrics. Like, um, you know, what is the cost per minute um, in the case of some, you know, original series? Um, so different metrics to, to measure, you know, the success. I think just like any content business, right, even in direct to consumer, it's return for the least amount of money, right? And that sounds really stupid, simple, and it's because it is. Um, in the case of, and that's why Disney has been so successful, right? Because they have these very, very large brands uh, that cannot be easily replicated. So, um, you know, Marvel, the entire, um, you know, Disney vault um, and all their uh, remakes like that. You can, like no one can come in and disrupt that. And so what they're able to do, yeah, Star Wars, I mean, the list goes on and on, right? Um, so the, so they're able to leverage those brands, right. And make very targeted investments with a very high degree of certainty of how they're going to monetize in the back end. So, uh, in the case of, you know, Disney plus, like, look, if, if you can spend four to $5 billion a year on content, right. And get the same number of subscribers as Netflix, whereas Netflix has to spend $6 billion a year to support a much larger content base. Um, but arguably they're going to continue to have to spend more and more and more to just satisfy the current um, subscribers as well as expand into other market, uh, markets to continue to grow, eventually hit that point of you know, declining return on your, on your content, right? Investment. And I think that's where Netflix is now and which is why Disney is in such a positive space um, in the case of Netflix, it's really hard because you don't have really established brands to rely on um, or even monetize in the future. Um, and this kind of comes down to a larger debate of like who owns the rights over the long term, because um, that's how you really get the channel values and content. And then there's also, you know, tier one licensed content like The Office and Friends and 
things that, and other high profile series, um, which, you know, have been being used for customer acquisition. So, um, there's no really one size fits all approach. Um, you know, Netflix has been wildly successful. They have, um, created some pretty meaningful temple franchises, um, with Stranger Things, the Witcher is really successful, Money Heist. Um, you know, they occasionally have like a one-off hit, like that no one expected, like, you know, Tiger King, for example, which drives a lot of growth. Um, because it, it gets, it goes, you know, creates that cultural awareness. It goes viral, right? The virality of it all. Um, and, you know, that's, that's how you get the, you know, the biggest bang for your buck in content. Awesome. Um, okay. I have, I have a couple of follow ups, um, though, maybe with the goal of even pushing us further into like how to pick stocks in the space. Um, in the last few minutes, you described something really, really fascinating, which is the industry moving from like a content hit or miss cycle of, like I mentioned before, the guesswork, right? Of like, oh, the bond moving next year, whatever, to to streaming, which now suddenly you actually have like brand loyalty because you're you're subscribing to Netflix or you're subscribing to Disney. Um, so whereas before you'd go to the theater and one, you know, one day the movie would be released by Columbia yeah. Pictures and the next day it was MGM and who cares. But now you're, you've got Disney Plus on your phone. So it changes the engagement a little bit between the consumer and the content provider. Um, in the case of Disney, right, they're like soup to nuts. So they're like figuring out what they're charging you at the front end. They're figuring out what you're watching. They're planning the content library, they're, they're migrating things, whatever, et cetera, and they're, um, and they're funding the very front end of the content creation, right? The whole kit and caboodle. But I'm imagining 10 years from now, there aren't like that many Disneys, right? Like, so there's going to be a long tail of content providers or I, well, tell me if I'm wrong. Well, look, yeah. I mean, look, it, it's like, so I, I, I kind of get it. Like the, the yeah, long so. tail has been getting cut off right, over the last five years with consolidation, right? We've seen rapid consolidation of both studios, um, whether it's, uh, you know, AT&T and the Time Warner deal, um, you know, Comcast, NBC Universal, you have, um, you know, the Disney-Fox merger, right? So there's still a lot of studios, but in terms of consolidation, they're all kind of under one house. And so we've seen like the long tail start to consolidate. And I think it's, you know, it's up for debate whether it's going to consolidate further. There's a lot of smaller companies out there like AMC Networks, Discovery. Um, there's Lionsgate. There's a, there is still studios out there that uh, you know Viacom even um, with Paramount. Although you know I think they're probably in a better spot than most. But still, the point is is that a lot of the consolidation has already happened. Um, and you know going forward, I think you know you're going to have you know, four or five major OTT services. Um, and then some of these other, uh, and then you're still going to have a tail, but it's, it's just not going to be, you know, as long with respect to kind of brand loyalty. Look, I think, I think that's, I, and this has been up for debate for a long time. Netflix has an amazing brand as a streaming service. Okay. They don't have an, an equal brand um, their brand isn't as great in content, right? Like I, I think 
if you think about where who has a stronger brand and content, that's clearly Disney, but Disney doesn't have a strong brand as a streaming service, right? And so over time, as they kind of, their worlds are going to collide and they're going to meet in the middle. And this is something we talked about a lot. So, you know, I think that content without distribution doesn't help anybody. And I think, you know, distribution without content doesn't really matter, right? So you can't, you, you do have to think about them being together, but in terms of the ultimate value here, right? Like distribution has slowly become a commodity with the rise of Roku. Um, it's, you know, Amazon Prime has their own distribution system. Like there's, it, the value of distribution and video is, is becoming, you know, it's not as great as it once was. And so how do you differentiate yourself? You have to differentiate yourself you know, on the content. And that's why Netflix went the original content route. Um, but it's hard. I mean, yeah, um, Netflix is basically trying to replicate, you know, Disney's model. They even talk about focusing more on tentpoles. They're trying to basically lever up their balance sheet um, and spend as much as much as they can to try to monopolize the industry by acquiring talent. Um, so doing these big, you know, flashy deals um, for, you know, um, you know, Shonda Rhimes and the Ryan Murphys of the world. Now, the question, and they've been really ramping up and spending more than anyone else um, in animation because they, they're trying to go after Disney after they lost that content, right? So it's a classic kind of disruption model. The question just becomes how sustainable that is um, longer term and what's Netflix's ability to really compete on content compared to some of these other media goliaths that have really, really strong uh, brands and franchises, frankly, like they're, they're franchises that they can leverage, right? And we saw that recently with HBO Max and, you know, the Wonder Woman 1984 was got awful personally, but um, it still drove a lot of signups for HBO Max, you know, um, and, you know, and Comcast with Peacock has been also, you know, fairly successful in leveraging their own library of content, including The Office. Um, which is now exclusive on, on Peacock. So you're seeing the content landscape fragment similar to kind of how cable fragmented back in the day, right? And that's something that's, um, you know, it's not going to end up as fragmented as cable, but I think the same, you know, we can take lessons out of that history book um, because that's where content goes and is, you know, content availability, availability fragments, um, you know, so the eyeballs follow, you know, um, and then it has wallet share implications, market share implications, churn implications, lifetime value of the sub implications, ROI implications. <laughs> like it's just, uh, it's a lot, you know, and I think the future is, is going to be kind of more of the same, uh, going forward as, as these services continue to scale. Now the question becomes, the big question becomes, all right, great. HBO Max, Peacock. They're all launching. They've launched, but they've burning billions of dollars in the process. It's not making any money. Streaming is a pretty terrible, has pretty terrible unit economics attached to it. Um, you know, Disney is, is losing money. Um, I think Disney has a better shot than anyone to leverage, um, you know, those franchises to generate profits um, and create value um, for reasons that we already discussed. But ultimately, um, the, the big question, which would be a vindication of the Netflix polls, is if, let's say, 
Comcast or H or AT&T bow out because they're saying, look, we, we were successful in launching the service. You don't really see a path to profitability. Um, and by the way, our stock price isn't getting rewarded for everything that we're doing as, as what we thought by making this direct consumer shift. And if that's the case, then we could actually see a reversion back to kind of the state that we were in five years ago where they start licensing their content back to um, Netflix. And just the last point I'll make on that is that we saw something similar just occur recently where WWE, which is you know, a small niche service, you know, demographic headwinds galore, um, and they were kind of struggling, but people were really bullish because they were the first kind of media company to make this push into direct to consumer, which they put up some decent growth initially, but quickly found out that it just wasn't scalable. And they started to, you know, they, they basically hit a wall with subscribers. And, you know, recently they've basically folded that entire service into Peacock, right? So it's kind of an admission of the fee on their part, uh, in that, of a smaller brand being able to successfully launch a direct-to-consumer business. Um, now, I think, again, their audience, the demographics are limited, right? So I think we have to, you know, we can't paint them with a broad brush. But um, if you look at, like, AMC Networks, uh, for example, they have kind of a long tail of these smaller niche streaming services that they've been able to you know, generate a fairly good amount of subscriber growth from, especially with your distribution on with the help from distribution from the likes of Roku. Um, and then discovery plus just launched and they, you know, we didn't even get into like the scripted non-scripted conversation, but you know, discovery plus had, um, you know, really great, uh, you know, un, uh, non-scripted content and lots of brands and they just launched the beginning of this year. So I think they're going to find some success as well. So I just rambled on. So sorry about it. that, but so I'm, I was taking notes the whole time. I, I, let me ask. Um, so okay, so so if I'm like an NBC uh, Peacock or any of the others who have content and who are right now like either in direct to consumer on their own OTT or or thinking about what to do, wouldn't wouldn't they see? Net, I mean, there's a question. Like, wouldn't they see Netflix more like at this point a competitor? And whereas somebody like Roku, or I don't know who, like you tell me, to be more like a neutral Switzerland front end who is going to provide all the streaming, and I'm just going to load my content on there, and we can come out with a good arrangement, and maybe I can even, like, you know, get Roku to agree to never fund content that competes directly with my, like, three key core areas or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, and and I guess my question is, like, you know, in the in the move forward – and you said like it, it doesn't work for all the individual brands to to build their own streaming front end. Even Disney's losing money on it. Um, wouldn't they all kind of like agree to find like a, a neutral Switzerland who obviously will make money and be like a great stock probably, but like it would be wouldn't be the same kind of threat to them longer term as Netflix. I, I guess that's the question. Oh, I mean, no, hundred percent. I mean, like that's why Roku's been so successful, right? I mean, the, the fact is is that Amazon. Fire TV, Google, Android, the rise of the smart TV. I mean, smart TV adoption in the U.S. is still like 40, 50%. Like that, 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 um, you know, adoption cycle really only kicked in like three years ago. Um, worldwide, it's a little bit, it's, it's just a little bit lower. Um, but in terms of, you know, these services being able to scale successfully rapidly, you know, having some type of platform to do that with is critical. You know, um, and Roku is a huge part of the success 
of um, of Disney Plus's launch. And not having a deal with Roku is a re- for a few months until December was a big reason why AT&T and H- HBO Max didn't do the subscriber growth and missed targets initially, right? So having that third-party distributor um, is incredibly important to have. Um, it's not unlike, you know, cable in a lot of ways where, you know, if you don't have the distribution, uh, you're, you're in a tough spot. But the, there is a cost, for, you know, there is a, you know, a cost to that distribution in the form of revenue share. Um, there's also advertising dollars. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, I think people thought that, you know, Netflix was going to be the streaming platform. They were going to be the aggregator of content, which they are. But it's, it's become quite obvious um, that they are not the platform that everyone thought they were once going to be. You know, back in the day, like 2015, 2016, um, back in the day, not that long ago, it feels like a lifetime, though. Um, you know, the media companies would go to Netflix and be like, hey, like, we would like to have, like, you know, a Showtime section within Netflix. And we'll give you, and we'll give you our content. And then, oh, by the way, will you give us data on how our content's performing? And Netflix was like, nah, no, nah, we're good. You know, we're just going to, we want everything branded within Netflix. And then they went to, and we're not going to get share with you the data because if we share with you the data of how your content's performing, then that gives you better leverage in terms of negotiating cost of licenses from us, right? So, and that ultimately brought them, and they went the original content path, um, which is fine, but it's not the platform that everyone you know, or at least a lot of people thought it could be. And that's where Roku has kind of filled that void and has been wildly successful. Um, <clears throat> both, uh, you know, they've executed very, very well considering their size and that they're competing against giants in the space. Um, and they are going to be incredible partners um, for Peacock, HBO Max, and all these other streaming services um, because it's a curation platform it's a discovery platform. Um, it's also an advertising platform. So kind of check the boxes. Um, you know, the question just becomes over time, like with any uh, third party, um, any distributor, the risk is always disintermediation of some sort, as well as, you know, who has leverage in the economics. And the shift to streaming is very different because if you think about how content and how these media companies are used to distributing content, a wholesale model, they're used to getting paid from the cable companies an affiliate fee per month, very high margin for all based on all their subscribers, right? Um, now it's the indirect to consumer to retail model. You know, they have to, they don't get paid that way. And so they, so they're not used to paying up, you know, for di- distribution. They're used to getting paid for distribution. And so that kind of old line of thinking has created a lot of, you know, it, you know, it's it's taken a lot of people, you know, in the in the like Comcast of the world or AT&T's of the world to kind of come around to that reality. Um, Disney was quick to embrace that, but the thing is, what's really interesting is that Disney didn't have any distribution to protect, right? So they had their stake in Hulu, and they were had, they were on this direct consumer path. But unlike Comcast or AT&T, you know, both Comcast has a huge cable business to protect. Um, AT&T has, you know, they have DirecTV, which has been in decline, but still they have distribution assets that they need to protect. And so they're more reluctant to support a distributor of video content 
that is in theory also cannibalizing, oh, not cannibalizing, that's also disintermediating their own business from the process. And that kind of goes into a larger conversation is just like, you know, wholesale transfer pricing, where unit economics are trending, like where the value is occurring within the broader TNT ecosystem. And to kind of maybe put a cherry on that, you know, bringing it back to your first question, you know, it, that's, that's a whole, that's like how I think you win in, like how you, you, you tackle the space from an investing standpoint is you try to understand from a top-down perspective where the value is accruing. Is it accruing to the consumer? Is it accruing to the content creator? Is it accruing to the value of the internet service provider? Um, and once you figure out where those trends are, then I think you have very long-term durable themes that you can play. It's not easy and a lot of uncertainty because the whole space, the whole, all these business models are getting turned upside down um, at a pretty rapid clip. But, um, you know, I think we've done a pretty good job in terms of, you know, figuring out how the, like, you know, the last few years are going to play out. And now we're trying to figure out, okay, you know, where to from here. Um, and I think, you know, it's, it's, I think the answer is just, it's just more of the same, probably not as exciting as it once was. Um, but, you know, there's, it's a, it's a, it's a great space. I feel very fortunate to have this coverage um, because it touches just a lot of aspects of, you know, a consumer's life, like just media in general. Um, but it's also presents a lot of interesting investment opportunities, both on long and short side. That's awesome. Yeah. It does sound like there's, first of all, it sounds complicated. Um, it sounds like, um, you know, to really forecast where we are 10 years from today, um, which is kind of obviously from an investment perspective where you can um, align yourself and, and with like a three-year long trend or four-year long trend and be very unique and differentiated and have outsized positions, both long and short, that you sustain over those times. Um, so to, to do that kind, of, uh, that kind of thinking of tenure thinking, you've got to take all these complicated sub-trends and roll them all forward to that 10-year finish line and see, like, is the power of the, this transition offset by this deterioration and this regulatory impact or this protectionism or whatever it is, and kind of, like, kind of figure that out. I think that's yeah. not... I mean, I mean, we didn't even talk about regulatory. I mean, that's a huge driver. We didn't talk about 5G. We didn't talk about interactive media, what's going on with gaming. I mean, there's... And what's great about having, like, what I found the most valuable um, is that, you know, it's a lot to bite off covering internet, media, and telecom. And a lot of, you know, our peer, my, you know, other um, you know, peers, competitors, whatever, on the south side, they usually just focus on one specific niche, like internet only, and there's like three stocks, or just telecom, or just cable. And doing so allows you to go really incredibly deep, right? Because time is a scarce resource. Um, and I think we go pretty deep. But I think you miss the forest for the trees and it's so helpful to kind of understand what Verizon is doing with respect to, you know, incorporating media assets into their um, bundle effectively for, uh, um, for their postpaid subs, right. To help reduce churn. And then what are the implications, like what are the implications of that for Disney or for Netflix through that um, distribution partnership? Right. Or understanding cable's role and broadband's role and then how that relates, um, you know, to, you know, pay TV, but then tying it back, those trends back 
to the legacy media guys and something like even like the ESPN where they've been facing the kind of unit economics. So it's really everything. My, so the point here is long-winded point is that everything's interconnected. And so being able to kind of follow the bouncing ball across the entire space allows you to, you know, be able to put on that tenure hat and really think through all the, like all the ramifications, like how everything kind of plays out. Um, and, and then even like internet, which is its own animal, but like still like this whole shift to digital social media, um, CTV, it's, it all, it all drives advertising budgets and how agencies think about the world. And ultimately everything is going to be much more, um, blended together in terms of how things are, are ultimately managed. So it's, you know, it's just to kind of, like I said, it's, answers another element of your question, your first question, um, but it's, it's a really fun uh, and exciting space. It sounds like it was a great theme deck, um, by the way, to uh, to whenever, I mean, not that you have time right now, but um, to, to kind of roll some of these, you know, into the future and also to take some of the initial work you did and um, update and refresh. And it just sounds like it's just, it just so complicated but it's also so important because there's so much market cap here and it's also a space that people can understand because you know listen i i'm signed up to hulu and i'm signed up to disney plus and like you know the other day i grabbed the movie from prime and like it's just we're all interacting with this content and so i think like having someone really smart like you like kind of think about what this looks like 10 years from now and help us like avoid the crappy ones who are going to deteriorate and wither because they have the wrong strategies and the ones who are like literally winner take all or or winner take a big chunk um, and finding those axes, um, those trend lines um, would be, sounds like, it just sounds like really great opportunity investing and also just thematically and intellectually in all of our lives because this stuff affects everyone media wise, like even outside of investing. So um, just really, it's so much change. I, 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 yeah, I appreciate the, yeah, I appreciate the, the smart comments. I, I appreciate that compliment, but I feel, I feel more dumb more often than I feel smart. I like to think I'm smart, but in reality, I'm, you know, the markets are humbling. We're often wrong. And so, you know, I feel more dumb than I, than I'd be smart, but whatever. It's, uh, you know, <laughs> you know who just, speaks the same way, you know, who speaks the same way, um, like the best portfolio managers in the world. Like that's how they yeah. talk about things like markets. Well, that's play. good. And, All right. Yeah. It keeps you hungry and we live to play another day. Um, I was just going to see if there's any last questions from the group before I throw one last one in. Anybody on the line want to throw in a question? Hey, uh, it's Felix. Uh, just a quick one for Andrew. Uh, appreciate all the, all the insight. This is very, very helpful. What's your uh, stance on the sort of like streaming market in Asia? Um, is it more fragmented than? Probably the U.S. I'm just trying to understand. Huh. I mean, uh, you, you, you yeah. tell me. I mean, you, you tell me, man. <laughs> uh, I, it's like this is another conversation. I know we wanted to, you know, collaborate more and more. Um, there's just a lot of collaboration I think we can do. Um, so maybe we save it for another time. I, the, the, the bulk of the work I've done, ex, I mean, I've done a lot of work in Europe, Latin America. When it comes to like the Asia region, uh, I've done most of my work in the work in India. 
Um, <clears throat> it's the largest market, and that's what we've been going after that. Uh, there's, you know, it is a more competitive market. Uh, people don't have a high propensity to pay for anything in India. It's more of an advertising-driven market. And you have the likes of Hotstar, um, which is owned by Disney, which has, is, which is just a giant, mainly because they have the, the, the cricket rights. Um, and it's ad supported. And then Amazon's trying to get in there with all those players. Um, you know, South Korea, Japan, um, Thailand, that area, there are some smaller, from my understanding, there are some smaller streaming services. Um, but it is, you know, more competitive, um, in, in a lot of ways. But again, you know, especially as it relates to China, obviously you have a lot more insight to offer. I, I would, you know, uh, than I do. Um, but international is the thing is, it's like that's the growth opportunity for somebody like Netflix. And they've tapped themselves out on the developed side. So they're going, you know, and they're cutting price to drive share with these mobile only subscriptions, um, which have worked so far. Um, but, you know, it's going to be really expensive to, t- to enter these spaces because uh, it's, you know, I know everyone, the bulls on Netflix say that, you know, content travels globally, blah, 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 blah. And like, I get it. Some, some local content will find success cross borders. But in reality, the majority of content that's done on a local basis in countries like India and Asia really are not going to travel outside. You know, they're going to have to spend a lot of money in those countries in production um, to really solidify their market share and compete, which I'm not saying they won't be able to do it. Um, I just think that it's going to be an incredibly expensive proposition and the economics are questionable. Awesome. That's um, that's a great way to end is to think about um, maybe down the line getting both you and Felix to focus on that area and, and media opportunities there and content trends. Um, but that's uh, I think that's as far as we'll go today. Um, thank you, everybody, for participating. Thank you, Andrew, for being on the hot seat today. Uh, I think we – I know I learned a lot, and I had a lot of curiosity. I still have a ton of curiosity around the space, so I hope we'll get a chance to – keep the conversation going and um, uh, everybody who's listening, thank you so much. And we'll be back again with another installment of uh, Equity Curiosities, unscripted. Thank you. The preceding has been presented for informational purposes only. None of the information contained herein constitutes an offer to sell or solicitation of an offer to buy any security or investment vehicle, nor does it constitute an investment recommendation or legal tax accounting or investment advice by Hedgeye or any of its employees, officers, agents, or guests. This information is presented without regard for individual investment preferences or risk parameters and is general, non-tailored, non-specific information. This content is based on information from sources believed to be reliable. Hedgeye is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions of information. The opinions and conclusions contained in this report are those of the individual expressing those opinions and conclusions and are intended solely for the use of Hedgeye subscribers and the authorized recipients of the content. All investments entail a certain degree of risk, and financial instrument prices can fluctuate based on several factors, including those not considered in the preparation of the content. Consult your financial professional before investing. The information contained herein is protected by United States and foreign copyright laws and is intended solely for the use of its authorized recipient. Access must be provided directly by Hedgeye. Redistribution or republication is strictly prohibited. For more detail, please refer to the Terms of Service at Hedgeye.com terms of service.